This week on the Gary Hour. One of the things I actually remember very clearly was our paperwork uh, said Jew. If you were a Jew in Russia, you were not a Russian. Your, the people's paperwork said Russian and our paperwork said Jew. And there was a limit in how many Jews could go to universities. Right now, simultaneously in this country, President Trump is interrupting all the networks going on live TV saying that the border wall is a national emergency. Yes. And all these refugees need to be stopped. Yeah. Now you as, you know, first generation refugee. Zero generation. Right. You're, if you have a child, that they will be first generation. Correct. So you yourself are a refugee. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, how do you feel about the southern border and how he's saying that they should be stopped? Welcome to another episode of The Gary Hour. I am your host, Gary Levitt. This week, I talk to comedian and comedic writer, among other things, Boris Hyken. He emigrated here from Ukraine when he was seven years old. We're going to hear all about life in Ukraine and coming here. He's not a first generation. He is the generation. This episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation If you're a musician, a podcaster, voiceover artist, filmmaker, or someone that just makes videos on their phone and you want to improve them, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments because they have an app that'll make your life easier and your productions so much better. Thanks for listening. Check out the show notes for links to Boris and more. Yes. Okay. Boris Aiken. Hike. Nope. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> Boris Hiken. Yeah, no, leave it in. Yeah. I want people to see that this is part of my life's difficulties, you know? Yeah, because your name is spelt uh, Kaken phonetically. Or Kaken. Or Kaiken. I had a lot of teachers do like Boris Kike and then stop themselves after they already said the bad part. Yeah. And then try to confirm. And I'm like, well, it's too late now, but it's <laughs> Getting people in trouble. Your, uh, your IMDb list is extensive. You're actor, writer, director. You have so much stuff on IMDb. I know. I don't know how that happened. They started, uh, like a bunch of stuff just got listed all of a sudden. Uh, You're prolific. I guess so. Yeah. I didn't realize it myself. Uh, one time I just uh, happened upon my IMDb and I was like, oh, wow, I'm prolific. <laughs> is, is that what you do? If you get down, you just open your IMDb and scroll? Just to jerk off to my own IMDb page. <laughs> Look, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and show my mother at the same time. Yes. All right. So where are you from? You have a very interesting look. Well. A very un-American look. Oh, man. What, what, an, uh, what an othering. A microaggression <laughs> to start with. Uh, no, I got a big beard. I didn't used to. I've only had this beard for like a year and a half. Yeah. I think when we met, I might have not even had the beard. Yeah, you didn't have the beard. Um, but I am originally from Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I came here in 91. 
and moved to Central Jersey, Edison, New Jersey, and I was in Jersey until 2007 because I went to college at Rutgers, also in Jersey, and then I've been in Brooklyn, New York, Manhattan, Hoboken for a year. How old were you when you came here from the Ukraine? I turned seven, like right after we came here. Okay, so you were just like six, six seven years old, and you're like, I'm done with this place. Yeah, well, my parents were done with the place. <laughs> I made few decisions on my own behalf. I would imagine so. Yeah. Well, what were your parents doing in the Ukraine? That uh, and why did they leave? Uh, well, that's that's a, lo- a long story. My parents were both engineers in Ukraine. Okay. Um, engineers? What do you mean? My mom was an electrical engineer. She did like uh, micro circuit design, and my dad was um, gonna say like audio video actually really he worked at a tv studio in ukraine and okay. did a lot of like uh various camera stuff and mm-hmm. audio stuff cool why did they leave well the berlin wall fell and so they were able to leave but uh in general there was not a good economy in the soviet union there was a big underground economy uh, what do you mean underground economy well meaning like it was communism so everybody had their job technically you worked for the state no matter what jo- your job was but uh, it was kind of like everybody pretended to work and the state kind of pretended to pay you and provide stuff. So like everybody got very low wages. Mm. Uh, everybody kind of half-assed their work because it didn't matter. They couldn't be fired. It did nothing really, you know. Right. If you worked hard, you still got paid the same as if yeah, you I mean, worked little. I mean, basically just, you know, shorthand communism. But uh, in addition to that, if people were did have ambition, they would find work underground. So my dad, for instance worked uh fixing vcrs and the people that had vcrs were very wealthy in the first place Mm -hmm. and even if you had a vcr if your vcr broke you weren't necessarily or almost you know definitely you weren't going to just buy a new vcr you were going to get it fixed so he would go from you know person to person and fix vcrs and funny enough he met my mom because i i think she either my grandma i'm not clear on this story entirely and also apparently it might have been a setup but like he (laughs) met my mom fixing either like her one of her relatives vcrs Mm -hmm. but i've asked about this and it sounded like somebody tried like kind of set it up that way yeah so you would think with communism that i mean in an ideal communist society everyone's paid a decent wage well in an ideal any society everyone's paid a decent wage true right but in reality uh, it's uh, according to his needs, right? As Marx said it, to each mm. according to their need. And unfortunately... Well, uh, who decides the needs? Well, exactly. So, you know, uh-huh. the, the uh, people that became oligarchs that worked for the government initially decided their needs were a little bit bigger than other people's needs. And then... Well, they didn't have a VCR, so they had no need for... For my dad to come and fix it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, that was one of the issues also. You know, even one of the things I actually remember very clearly was our paperwork... Uh, said Jew. If you were a Jew in Russia, you were not a Russian. Your the people's paperwork said Russian, and our paperwork said Jew. And oh. there was a limit in how many Jews could go to universities. And uh, if you were practicing, my grandma actually told me recently because most of my family is not religious because that was also not allowed. So most people did not practice religion. Some practiced it in secret, but they were actually um, taking a risk. Like uh, my grandma was telling me not long ago that like she would drop her mother off at the synagogue and her mother would be like, don't don't come near it with me because she would risk, she was a doctor in the Ukraine and she would risk her ability to go to medical school if somebody ratted and, and found out that she, so she was practicing Judaism. She was Judaism. a secret Jew. 
My grandma wasn't a Jew at all, but her mother was a Jew, and she, I guess, at that point was old enough where it didn't really matter for uh-huh. whatever was going on in her life. But most people were either not practicing or were doing it in secret. Although I do know that there were a few churches that had deals with the government where, like, if they properly revered the government, that the, the, um, they were allowed to practice in some way. What ch- Catholic churches? Uh Orthodox, I believe. Yeah. Orthodox Jewish churches? No. Yeah, no such thing. Absolutely not. <laughs> so, uh, forgive my ignorance, but uh, what was the Ukraine doing during World War II? Where, what was happening there? Um, well, there was, uh, let's see, there was, I'm, I'm not going to give you a too clear history lesson, but um, I know my grandma's brother died fighting in World War II. Uh, Ukraine was part of USSR, so I, I don't know if I'd be able to speak explicitly or specifically about the Ukraine, but the Soviet Union was at war with the Nazis. Technically, the Soviet Union, you know, sort of won the war. Mm. The U.S. is what kind of brought about a, a, a change, like an, act, an actual peace and an influx and oversaw establishment of infrastructure and things like that. But the Soviet Union, was the, to their detriment and benefit, was willing to throw a lot of bodies into fighting the war. Right. And they had the, you know, AK-47, which famously is one of the most reliable guns in history still to this day which during uh the winter a lot of the german guns couldn't uh would freeze up in the winter whereas the ak-47 is one of the most reliable guns because that's way it's a russian gun Automat kalashnikov yeah that's what the ak stands for yeah ah so uh, even though russians thought of jews as not even russians right they still were fighting the nazis why well um they it was empires they were fighting in empires and uh it wasn't for starters when i lived there it you're talking about you know a while later after world war ii so yeah. there's a bunch of cultural differences and things like you that you do not look that old to be alive during world war ii right <laughs> um and the thing is is that it's pretty complicated even even my limited understanding of both the history and the like political aspects of it jews were also very involved in the communist revolution, the Bolsheviks were Jewish. There were Jews in America that were involved in financing the communist revolution. And there still are a lot in America that, that feel positively about it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's pretty complex. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, nuance, a lot of, nuance, a lot of uh, self-sabotage as well. Mm-hmm. So even though Jews in, in Russia during that time were considered not Russian, were they considered lower class? Um, or animals or something like that? <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was lower class necessarily. I think it was just uh, needed to be controlled. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a theme of Jews being scapegoats in various different cultures. And it was sort of, um, in a lot of ways, it might echo uh, an idea that they were seen as sort of privileged in a way. Interesting. Yeah. Were, they, were they low class people or were they wealthy Jews? Uh, I'm sure there were both, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, during the like revolution, there were like, you had Cossack farmers and I'm sure some of which were Jews that were considered, you know, it was basically the, the communist leaders would pit the very poor against the slightly less more productive poor. And so that's how you end up getting everybody on board to overthrow stuff and take over the farmlands. And then, uh, you can't run the farmlands efficiently and then you get famine mm-hmm. and, that's that's the communist revolution in a very small nutshell <laughs> right like a four frames four frame cartoon yeah very pixelated nice so your parents came here from the ukraine 
how did they get here? How did they get? Did they come here illegally? Did they get citizenship? Was it arranged? Came here legally. It was basically chain migration, is what you would call it. Um, so when the wall fell in '89, I knew my parents wanted to get out of there. Kept it very quiet. Didn't tell uh, me until we were definitely leaving. Didn't tell their parents because my mother's father until a very late was a, a proud communist mm. and a lot of people over there that didn't like my dad and certain other people would listen to voice of america and they would get information from outside but if you didn't get information from outside it's people really underestimate how easy it is to be brainwashed and so um while a lot of the populace was miserable you might not necessarily know that there's an alternative to that misery or you wouldn't be able to express that misery out loud because you would be a traitor to your country right so um my my grandpa i know they didn't tell until we were like just ready to leave uh and we couldn't get in at first we they filed paperwork there was a i remember my dad mentioning frank lautenberg had some sort of arrangement where he changed the immigration policy where we were all ready ready to leave and we got kind of screwed because when you announce you're leaving you're a traitor to the state right and so you automatically now can't work legally you can't do any of that stuff so i i don't know all the uh intricacies of it but you're not arrested you're just considered a traitor. You're not arrested, and I don't know. Again, I, I don't know enough details on it, but I know at one point they were trying to go to Israel because we couldn't go to America, but they wanted to go to America. They they just we couldn't. There was no opening or whatnot. Then, um, what happened was my mom became pregnant with my younger brother, mm-hmm. and because my grandma was a doctor there and it would be immigrating to a new country, she wanted to stay and have my brother there. And so during the time that we stayed and she had my brother, a spot opened up for us to come to America. So we came to America uh, as refugees thanks to my father's mother's, no, uh, my father's, my step, my, his mom, my dad's dad died a year before I was born. Also, funny story from drinking horse milk in Uzbekistan. Aha, uh-huh. that sounds very Borat. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very Borat. Uh, but he was stationed there during the war. I think World War Two. But I'm honestly, are, not... are you supposed to drink horse milk? They no, yeah, exactly. So he didn't just fucking suckle on the teat and, <laughs> and, and non consensually. Although the, the horse, I'm sure, gave no consent one way or another. But. Yeah. Uh, but no, they drank horse milk and it was not pasteurized and there was a bacteria that he got and it took like 20 years to take him out. Basically, like paralyzed him. He spent the last like five years or so Oof, of slow. his life in the hospital. Yeah, it was like a slow, slow death. Um, but his, my grandmother remarried and her new husband, the family was, I don't know how they moved to America, but they came to America. So thanks to them, they, my grandparents were able to come, and then thanks to us, we came. Now, how, how do you do that? You're, you get refugee status. So do they have to know somebody here in the United States? That's to- part of it. So uh, I know they changed U.S. immigration laws twice were major changes, once in 65 and once in 82. And they're, and they're refugees. They're not running from a war. They're just running from a system. Persecution that- and also, at the time... Um, well, the Berlin Wall fell, so it wouldn't necessarily be communist refugees, although I think the fact that there was still such a chaotic system where they were figuring out Ukraine as an independent nation right. and the the structure collapsing and just in general it was a very unstable economy and add to that the fact that we were Jews. A lot of Jews came from former Soviet countries between like, 
I'm going to say even 87, but definitely mostly after the wall fell because that's when they were really able to leave from like 89 to like 93. I think there was probably a very large influx of Russian Jews. And we're doing this podcast right now simultaneously in this country. President Trump is interrupting all the networks going on live TV saying that the border wall is a national emergency. Yes. And all these refugees need to be stopped. Yeah. Now you as, you know, first generation refugee zero generation right you're if you have a child that they will be first generation correct so you yourself are a refugee correct yeah yeah so uh how do you feel about the southern border and how he's saying that there should be stopped i don't think it's an emergency that's for sure and i don't think that because he's trying to call it a national emergency to <clears throat> get funding for building the wall right a little loophole yeah, I don't think it's a real loophole. I don't think he's going to be able to do that. I don't think it's a I don't think it'd be a good idea if he were able to do it, but uh, in general, I don't I don't think that's a legal thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, do you feel any kinship with the the people trying to get in from Honduras, Nicaragua, all these places that are Venezuela? Um, it depends. I I mean, I feel kinship with anybody trying to immigrate anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's a pretty complicated issue. I think that um I think that it's a shame that it's Trump who's uh, who's the one addressing it. Yeah. I think the U.S. does have immigration issues. Uh, I think that for a long time, Republicans and Democrats did a very bad job of addressing any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it, that uh, it's good that everybody's talking about it, but it's a shame that it's Donald Trump that's right. making everybody talk about it because it kind of makes the whole conversation nonsense. When you hear stories about the Ukraine and populism in general, do you see similarities with uh, some of Trump's words? Um, like enemy of the people, the press? And I can't say I, I have enough knowledge about the, uh, the rise of populism in the Ukraine. Ukraine now, especially, there's there's... Russian populist movements. Mm-hmm. So, because you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. Crimea. And even over there, it's like pretty complicated. There's a lot of Russian nationalists who live in Ukraine. I speak Russian, not Ukrainian. Uh-huh. Uh huh. In a lot of villages, people spoke Ukrainian. Um, now, you speak Russian because you grew up with your parents who kept speaking it here? No, I speak Russian because it was my first language. Right. Um, but in general, uh, my parents, I can understand, Ukrainian to me just sounds kind of like somebody speaking Russian with a speech impediment or something. It's like, <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's almost like... Like a southern accent compared to... It's uh, like Spanish and Portuguese, but a little bit closer still right, right. than Spanish and Portuguese. So I could understand it. I definitely can't speak it. And I probably couldn't understand it some of the time either. But long story short, you know, there's a lot of uh, debt in Ukraine mm-hmm. that Russia supposedly can take on that the European Union can't take on because they can't take on a lot of Greece. So there's a lot of older population in Ukraine that's uh, especially Western that has some Russian nationalism to it. A lot of the younger population, A, isn't dependent on a lot of those programs, and B, is much more passionate about human rights. Uh, mm. and, and, you know, Russia being homophobic and having a lot of other human rights issues. Right. So there, you, you have a big generational divide there and you have a big economic divide. Some Ukrainians want to be part of Russia. Some do. And yeah. some don't. Yeah. And and again, it's it's kind of like a complicated history because it used to be part of Russia at one point mm-hmm. and then it wasn't part of Russia. And then Ukraine is like not 
it's not that people are strong Ukrainian nationalists either because it's not like Ukraine's taking that great care of people. Right. And Ukraine had a crazy thing where Russia was supplying oil to Europe at one point and they had a pipeline through Ukraine and Ukraine was just siphoning oil illegally from Russia. <laughs> now they've built a new pipeline. Uh-huh. But again, it's it's a lot of a lot of nuance to the situation. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. So your parents still around? Yeah. Mm-hmm. They live in Jersey. They live in Jersey. Wow, from Ukraine to Jersey. Yep. So they end up getting here. Do they have jobs lined up? No. So um, we got help from a Jewish organization to find our first apartment, and I got, like, hand-me-down clothes and things like that. Mm-hmm. They, um, when they first moved here, my dad got a job repairing VCRs and TVs and stuff for some, like, repair shop. Uh I think it was called like HR audio video Conti- something. Continuing the career. Basically. But like where do you where do you move to? You come here from a whole totally different country. Right. Where do you end up? Where do you live? Well, because we already had those relatives that were my grandparents other children from his other my grandfather's other marriage. Okay. They lived in Jersey. I'm not sure if it was Edison specifically, but somewhere near there. And they're just like, well, take in this whole family. No, they didn't. They didn't. We got an apartment. Okay. Um, but it was like an, like a project housing complex that was like Section 8 housing, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was working at that HR audio video spot. My mom got a job. I think she was working like painting jewelry, some, some kind of menial, like minimum wage stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and while they did that... Um, so I had my one pair of grandparents that was here. I had my mom's parents. The other pair of grandparents came, I think, say two years or three years later. Mm-hmm. But um, they're just bringing the whole family. Chain migration. Yeah, that's, that's how it works. Yeah. So, uh, so while that happened, my mom was while my mom would work during the day painting jewelry. She went to school for computer programming. Wow. And so, uh, this is while raising children, like you're seven, seven or up at the time. Yeah. My, the- my grandparents helped a lot at that time, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then once the other grandparents came, that was also a very big help for you them. You have one younger brother? One younger brother. Okay. Um, so yeah, my, my mom was going to work during the day to school at night. And then once she finished, because, uh, you know, there's not a huge future in fixing TV and VCRs, as you might imagine, based on today's world. Yeah. They don't fix anything anymore. They don't fix anything. Also, we don't have VCRs anymore. And also your TV is, you know, it's cheap. It's made in China. And Mm -hmm. most of the time when it breaks, it's either under warranty or you're going to get a new one. Yeah. It's cheaper to just throw it out and get a new one than to fix it. Yeah. I, I probably, um, I mean, it's crazy. Do you remember when like plasma screens and shit first came out? Yeah. It was like, it, it was such a measure of wealth. I remember when you were a kid, yeah. how big a TV someone had. Yeah. And now like you never really know because there's like really expensive big TVs. But then there's also like $300 big screen TVs that like your friend who like is technically in debt but has, you know, whatever. Yeah. I remember when some of these big screen TVs came out and you'd be, the, the thing it was, the film wasn't even caught up to the television. You'd see flaws and stuff. Yeah. You could see, it looked like it was filmed on a cheap camera because the TV was too nice for the. Well, that was probably big back when they had CRTs still because when when LCD screens as a dad that fixes this shit I know a few things yeah, but yeah. when LCD screens first came out uh, they weren't as good as as the best like old like cathode ray tube TVs uh-huh. they the resolution wasn't as good even to this day a lot of them the the blacks because they're the lights is all throughout the the LEDs yeah. the absolute blacks it's not as much of a contrast because you right. can't have actual black whereas 
a CRT TV can have actual black. Of course. Of course. That's like we like we all know. But anyway, I digress. So once my mom finished school and got a job uh, as a computer programmer, my dad started going to school at night uh-huh. so that now she could be home with us at night. And my dad would work during the day and go. And then eventually they both became computer programmers. And that's when, like, after a couple of years, they finally were able to, like, make a real living for themselves and, right. and so get they, out of debt and they being poor. pretty hard when they got here. Yeah, I'd say that's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see that. I live in Queens, you know, and uh, my neighbors and people that run the laundromat, they seem to have come from China. Yeah, they work their asses off. Work their asses off, constantly working. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. So your parents did that. They worked their asses off. They got made a better life for themselves. Also, I could move to Brooklyn and be a comedian. <laughs> be a comedian. <laughs> but you're more than a comedian. You're a writer and an actor. Yeah. Um, I um, I do a lot of video. It's funny because I started doing like sketch and stuff to have more control over my own career to like put myself on camera and get my name out there and Write stuff. Write your own stuff. Yeah, and, but then I realized, you know, you say actor, but that's probably where I'd like credit myself last because uh, I think it's the thing I'm, I'm the least good at. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm okay when it's something that I fit. But what happened was I started writing sketches and then I'd realized, especially if I want to direct, I'm not going to act in it because that's a recipe for disaster right. most of the time. Even with, you know, talented celebrities, they'll write and act and then direct their own thing and it'll come out like garbage. Yeah. Um, but I would be it's like... It's hard to get that objectivity. For sure. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a very difficult thing to do. But then I would also think of friends that I'm like, oh, this person will be so much funnier in this role than mm-hmm. me. And so I started directing a lot of stuff and, and yeah, I still do a lot of directing and video editing. Do, do you see this as a continuation from your father's work? You're like, I'm going to do the same, but I'm going to be in front of the TV yeah. or in the TV. Yeah. Well, I think some of the technical skills for sure. I mean, when I was a little kid, I was like taking apart radios and stuff. My dad still has a hobby, you know, uh, right now he's actually unemployed, but as a hobby, he uh, would buy old like tube radios and fix them up. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's funny is at first he did it because he thought he would like, then he like bought an old broken one on eBay and like fixed it up. And then he would always be like, after I fix it, I'll be able to sell it for more. And then he fixed it up and he like, he's like, no, I'm too, I like it. (laughs) <laughs> he just kept it and now if you go to our house he's got like five of these little tube like old like 1940s to 60s radios it's like a museum like in there powered. yeah a little bit mm-hmm. and well now I'll, I'll go like if I'm traveling somewhere I'll stop by an antique store and I'll see some like old Zenith radio for 20 bucks and mm-hmm. I'll be like this looks like it's in okay condition I bet my dad could fix it so do you guys go back to the Ukraine? We went once mm-hmm. uh, we were planning on going actually uh, my parents and me and my girlfriend, my brother and his girlfriend, we were all going to do a big family trip this next summer. But now there's martial law there, and there's it's pretty unstable. In the Ukraine, what, is, what do you mean by martial <clears throat> law? What does that mean? Well, exactly what it sounds like. It's There's curfews, and mm-hmm. there's uh, high like government control right now. They, they have the army out. I don't know too much more than that, because I, I haven't looked at it that closely. My dad has a friend that lives there, and... Our hometown, Odessa, which is on the Black Sea, it's a really nice, it's, it's a famous town from there. It's mm-hmm. really beautiful. It's got this boardwalk with all these discotheques and uh, the opera houses there. It's like the, the cultural center because that's where the port was. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of imports there and things like that. <clears throat> and um, so we were going to go back, but because of martial law, uh, 
we canceled. We, we were just beginning to plan it, and they already had issues happening in western Ukraine and had finally reached Odessa where we'd heard from relatives that the unemployment rate's really high. It's not super safe in certain areas, and there's curfews, and it, it's just, you know, not a great time to visit. You would be able to fly in there, but it just wouldn't be any joy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure we would be able to fly in there. And also, you know, compared to a lot of the populace that lives there, we're wealthy now as almost any American. Right. So if you go and you have – when I when we did go, uh, I'm trying to remember what year it was. I'm, I'm going to say like 15 years ago or something. No, not hounded. Nothing like that because there are rich people also that go there. Mm-hmm. In fact, when we went to like the discos and stuff like that, like way, way richer than, than your average American, like, my, like oligarchs, like Russian oligarchs, like – old school that like when the when communism fell right. the people that were connected to government just kind of like inherited and took for themselves whatever right it, it, it wasn't a smooth transition to the free market yeah so um there in these discotheques would be tons of like mafia looking dudes and and these oligarchs and stuff but when we visited it was still just like the culture of corruption is also still very much there, which to this day, like I am hesitant to do any kind of business with Russian people. Really? (laughs) Oh, for sure. It's just in the culture that, that like the honesty scheming. Yeah, for sure. Just like short term and, and not everybody, there's still decent human beings, Yeah, of course. but there's just this mode of operation where the not decent human beings are like really permanently fixed in this way. where like, there's even when it's not good for them, there's insurance scams that Russians pull in America. Mm-hmm. Like just a lot of businesses where I would just like if I'm getting a contractor, I probably even though know, I have an uncle that's a contractor. He's a very nice, <laughs> honest man. But if I didn't know them and I was working and trying to get a contractor, I would not work with a Russian dude. Right. Do you see a difference from a Ukrainian person and a Russian person? I don't I don't think I know it well enough. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. okay. especially because I have a uh, decent like almost coincidentally, I have friends that ended up being Russian from Belarus, from Kazakhstan, from like mm-hmm. other cities, you know, Kiev and Moscow. And I just know the things that are in common because the things that are different are just as different as the things that are different between anybody else or me and any American. You sure. Know? Absolutely. What's the uh, perspective on Putin? Um, also mixed. I can't say I I can give you the best representation of it. I think that most Russians know that he's a thug. He's an old school KGB thug. Mm -hmm. He's very smart, uh, without a doubt, very, very intelligent dude. And supposedly one of the richest men, if not the richest, because if, if all his finances were actually visible yeah supposedly the richest person or one of the richest people in the world in the world yeah Yeah. um but which which like who cares once you have a certain amount of money right it doesn't really matter and you're the leader of this what's what you're trying to make a new empire and a lot of people see it as a strength a lot of people see him as a scumbag and a thug but they still see it as somebody who's finally at least stabilizing the economy there mm. and again it's 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 a mix of good and bad on the one hand you still have all this corruption and he's like murdering people in, right. in a political sphere on the other hand there's these dissimilarities that make for really fundamental differences you now have russians politicians and powerful people whose children live here so there's this fundamental difference between the cold war and now where there there's a 
bigger risk for them and a more vested interest in still maintaining this order. So you said the economy is good there. He, he no, I, I don't. It. I don't. I'd say relative. All, all relatively speaking. Right. There's still a lot of corruption. There's still, again, there's oligarchs that own the majority of the wealth there. There's a, again a large disparity as well. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but there's more private ownership. There's more investment from the outside, and it's a long way to go. But there's still sparks of what eventually creates a free economy where people are able to move up the ladder and things like that. Is he kind of considered a hero for what he did? No, I don't think he's considered a hero. I think he's just considered a thug who's the same way that like old school in Brooklyn, you had different mob bosses who like protected stuff and there was a value to that protection in the context that they were living in. Right, and the way you described him was exactly how people feel about Trump. He's strong. He's not necessarily, you Putin's know. He's a lot smarter than Trump, I think. Though. Right, but, right, yeah. right. But he's not like on the level. He's a little sketchy, but he stabilized the economy. You know, people are like, well, he's good for the economy. I mean, that's turning out not to be the case. That's, one, that's one of the things that people say. But yeah, I, I see the similarities, but there's, there's just these fundamental differences, I guess, of you sanity. Think have- I don't think Putin's insane is the thing, for starters. Like, right. I, I think he's just less erratic as a way more calculated it seems yeah i mean incomparably so right yeah and that's a big difference yeah do your parents like you being a comedian are they like we came here we worked so hard and now you're just going to be make jokes i think they were worried during certain times but i think the fact that I've never like come back and been like I'm broke. I need to move back in or anything like that. Right. The fact that I've been able to like take care of myself. I've worked day jobs. Most, you know, I I worked for one company. I did ad sales the first four and a half years I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. Hated it. Eventually, uh, I got fired slash left. It was a <laughs> mutual mutual situation where i was trying to get fired but then i was trying to get fired a conscious uncoupling a conscious uncoupling that's a great great way of wording it i put stones in my vagina publicly (laughs) um no but they they've been worried at times but now they're pretty chill with it and you know my brother also he runs a marijuana paraphernalia company oh in in jersey in jersey it's and not it's not legal oh, wait it just became legal there well paraphernalia so when i just said marijuana paraphernalia that's my opinion right it's actually for tobacco use only of course it is uh, officially yes dankstop.com by the way <laughs> for that dank I'll, tobacco. I'll, get, I'll get you a discount code. <laughs> um but wait it just became legal in jersey 2019 uh, right marijuana did it yet i know he was planning on signing it i don't i don't know if it did already okay i may be jumping the gun on the date there. yeah i'm not sure it, it, you might be right but I'm, I'm not sure if it's officially like all done right all said and done but i mean if it does uh, that'll be great for him or who knows or amazon will go into the business sure. and and screw him and everybody else in the industry out and say yeah. we're the we're the main distributor now um it's it's a crazy industry but my point was that like uh he you know i was like not a troublemaker, maybe a little bit of a troublemaker, but more of like a jackass when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. My brother was a troublemaker. Like he he got into fights, he got arrested, like stuff like that. Whereas I was like more of like an idiot. I got suspended for like pulling dumb pranks and like right. stupid shit. Class clown kind of thing. Yeah, class clown kind of thing. And uh, my brother, like my mom once found him growing a weed plant in uh, in his closet and mm-hmm. was like, 
and found a bong. I remember her shattering a bong. I remember her throwing this weed plant out. And, and in Russia, they didn't really have it. You know, they probably had shit weed if they did have it at all. To them, culturally, they were like, now they've come, come around a little bit. But, you know, in the beginning, up until we were adults, basically, they were very, like, old school propaganda, like marijuana's a drug, it's the gateway, it'll ruin your life, like right. that kind of stuff. They were not into it at all. And I, we, my brother and I both been smoking since, I've been smoking probably since I was like 15, 16. Him, I don't even know, he might have started younger than I did. I know he started doing everything younger than I did, I'm sure. Yeah. He was just a cooler kid, but also like just more of a badass when he was younger. Well, he was also in the States from a younger age. <laughs> exactly. He was more, in the States, he was assimilated, he didn't He's kind maybe, of a little more cool than you, I guess, right? He's probably more than a little more cool than me, but he also probably doesn't have some of the damage that comes from like not knowing the language, going to ESL and getting made fun of for like weird <laughs> cultural things. Yeah. Um. So yeah, and also he like played hockey as a kid and like all that kind of, I never played sports as a kid really. I did, uh, you know, music and theater and that kind of stuff eventually. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, mostly just, um, yeah, we, so we terrorized our parents and literally like I was, I was trouble for teachers and then my brother got to school, he looks a lot like me uh, or a decent amount like me to where someone would be like, oh no, you're Boris's brother, aren't you? Like they knew something was coming right. and it was way worse than they expected because he was worse than me on a fun. He like, I remember once he like shoved the teacher because the teacher tried to take his phone away and he's like, he put his hands on my property. Like, like that kind of deal. Yeah. So, uh, which, you know, you can respect that a little bit, mm -hmm. but I never did anything like that. I, I was just like, was an idiot. And so, um, I think now that my brother runs a company with like 40 employees. Wow. 40. That's yeah. They, they grew and he started in my parents' basement, him and his buddy, like posting photos of bongs on Instagram with mm -hmm. a link of where to buy them and just slowly grew it for six years now, I think. Nice. And, and grew it into like a legitimate company. So now that my brother's doing great, I'm doing like pretty good for a comedian. I think I'm doing decently financially, but Otherwise, not as well as my brother. That's for damn sure. Right. Or as well as most non-comedians. <laughs> <laughs> that's such a uh, yardstick for parents. Like, as long as you're supporting yourself, yeah, you're good. And, I mean, that's a big one, you know? You want to make sure that you raise the grown adult, you know? And then... Um, and but they have no objection to how he makes his money? No, not at all. At this point, definitely not. He runs a distribution company as far right. as they're concerned. And also he does. He expanded it. He's got a wholesale brand. Mm -hmm. The warehouse he got has extra capacity. So he started a distribution company that just does regular distribution outside of that. Like, And he's like... What's he, the name of the company? The distribution company? I don't know. No, uh, His Dank. company, Dankstop.com. Dankstop Dankstop.com. Yeah. And I had him sponsor a comedy tour that I went on. Nice. So that came in pretty handy. Perfect. And I give out bongs at shows sometimes and nice. stuff. You know, can you enter uh, code Boris for 10% off? Um, I can I can make that happen. <laughs> Let's say code Boris now and I'll have him added in. All right. Nice. Um, yeah, he'll, he'll definitely do 10% off for code Boris. So we can say that. Um, but uh, what was my point? Oh, yes. Yeah, so, so just like, and now my parents have seen me do stand up a couple times and uh, they're like proud. My dad's a funny guy. I got my sense of humor from my parents. Uh -huh. They grew up watching a lot of Russian comedians and they enjoy comedy, my dad in particular. And so now uh, they didn't see me for a long time. I, I, I don't know if I felt weird about it or what, but it was only, I think, maybe two years ago my parents saw me do comedy for the first time. Was that their choice or yours? 
No, they were asking to see me several times. And then finally I had a show in uh, Union, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I invited them. And it was a packed out show. And I had a great set. And they brought their friends and had a great time. And so... And now my, my parents saw me there. Then I did this one show that the only reason I invited them was because it was literally like blocks, like like a five-minute drive from their house. Right. And I didn't know what to expect and because uh, it was like a couple local like New Jersey comedians. And actually, there were a bunch of really funny people there. It wasn't super well attended. So if that was their first time seeing me, I would have been a little bit embarrassed. But yeah. it, but they, they were at the show, and I still had a great set despite the fact that it wasn't – they've never seen me bomb, which luckily doesn't – happen regularly that's for sure but like also like you don't want to bomb in front of your parents that's no. not but even a poorly attended show they'd be like what are you doing with your life exactly so like but they i i kind of warned them i was like i don't know what the expectation is here right. but but they enjoyed the show and there were other other people that were really funny on it and so they had a good time and then i have my monthly show now the breakdown and they mm-hmm. went to see the last one cool and i had uh rl stein on it who mm-hmm. wrote goosebumps who they remember me reading as a child so they were excited my dad got a photo with me and rl stein and my co-host and it was a fun show it was packed out and mm-hmm. and so now they're now my dad will get excited and he'll be like you know we're proud of you you're funny you're a good comedian we like what you're doing he said that to you yeah yeah oh that's what every now he says wants. it all the time he might be a little drunk when he says it but nonetheless <laughs> Right. Big drinkers? Um, no, I wouldn't say huge drinkers, but my dad lost his job not too long ago. Uh, so when he's not employed, oh, maybe the, the drinking picks up a little bit when yeah. he's not as employed. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, but otherwise, it's also Russian. So when there's a dinner, people are definitely down in shots and stuff. But it's the kind of thing where like these like... My dad's thankfully losing some weight now. He got pretty fat at one point, and uh, he's gonna have to deal with me talking publicly about that. <laughs> I'm pretty mean to him, honestly. Like sometimes my girlfriend even calls me out on it. Where like right. I'm just like no holds bar. Like you look fat. You need to go to the gym. This is n- fucked up. Like my mom is a cancer survivor, and she had um, a hormone receptive type of cancer. Where if you it, it's very fortunate. It's a type of breast cancer that if you catch it early, it's very high survival rates. Right. And um, and if you control the hormones, it also helps a lot with it. But exercising helps a lot. So ever since mm-hmm. then, my mom's got, we got a, they got a treadmill downstairs. My mom exercises regularly, tries to get my dad to the gym. So I'll be very rough with him, sort of partly just because I'm a little bit of a shit, but also because I care about my dad and yeah. I don't want him in terrible health. But also because I care about my mom and I don't want her dealing with my dad in terrible health. Sure. They'll go on vacation and they'll go for walks and he has to like... You know, he gets tired before she does, and that's bullshit. I don't want. I wouldn't want him <laughs> hold me down. You're being a good son. I'm being a good son when I'm being an asshole to him. Yeah. Um, Who would win in a roast battle? You me or my dad? dad. Yeah. I mean, I'm a better joke writer. You are, huh? You know, I well because I write jokes. I'm pretty good with roast jokes. Right, right. Lie. I've won yeah. my share of roast battles. Yeah, you've been. You've done a few. I've done a, a decent a amount now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got there's a good one that I actually lost, but one of my favorites against uh, Jess Fleischer on Roastmasters online. Mm-hmm. But we both came at it. She won, but I I was so super happy they posted it because like we both had fucking killer roast jokes. I had such a blast doing it. Mm-hmm. But I've done a bunch of those now. I've done the the new um, Christ. I'm blanking on what the new one is called. But I've done those. But yeah, I, I like doing roast battles. It's just great joke writing exercise. And, you know, I love I love the culture of it. Yeah, you got to have thick skin because they could dig You got to have thick skin. But you know what? Like people talk about safe spaces in New York and that is the safest space. There's people doing trans jokes. There's people doing race jokes. And like everybody is just like, 
together on it. You know, it's anything like anything goes, anything goes, and it's agreed upon, and it just feels good. And there's a really great comic, uh, Margot Reese, who's mm-hmm. a trans woman, yep. and she posted a whole thing about how this dude was like being an asshole to her on the train, and like calling her all this shit and she was like you know what i i felt all i could think of was like this guy's a hack after doing a bunch of roast battles because mm-hmm. you know she's taken like all these you know cruel but uh, but loving but with love <laughs> jokes because it, that's kind of the, the whole culture of it so yeah, yeah I, I like that shit a lot have you uh done stand-up in russian to a russian audience or in no Russia? i wonder if i could do it i um I saw. I, I used to freestyle rap a lot. I was part of an improv with a freestyle. And uh, I've tried doing it in Russian, and my Russian is not amazing. I took Russian for Russian speakers in college, which brushed it up a little bit. And then you know, some years passed, and it's not as good. I tried to. I borrow books from my grandma, and I never read them as much as I should. But I have like books these, in, in Russian. In Russian, mm-hmm. I bet I could write jokes in Russian. And you know what? I, I'm sure I could just write jokes in English and translate them to Russian. Sure. Sometimes there's just a disconnect. Of sense of humor where it's different sense of humor culturally yeah but there's some russian jokes that are like i don't know if they're russian or old jewish jokes but i definitely heard them in russian like what do you give an example yeah yeah actually well i have one of my favorites that's like it's a this this, is a russian joke this is a russian from ukraine yeah this is i remember hearing this as a kid (laughs) it's um this elephant is walking through the woods and he sees a, a piece of shit on the trail and he looks and he's like oh man that that looks like a piece of shit. Kind of gets close to it, sniffs it. Yeah, that smells like a piece of shit. Puts some in his hand, kind of feels it. Yeah, that feels that feels a lot like a piece of shit. Tastes a little bit. Tastes like a piece of shit. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely shit. Puts it back down, walks around. Good thing I didn't step in it. <laughs> nice. It's a nice like yep. nice little Russian. And there were, you know, what's funny is I remember hearing old Woody Allen bits that he just took from like old Russian Jewish jokes because oh, that's yeah. where where he's from. Mm-hmm. And I remember he had a joke that was like my, you know, what's funny is my dad told me this joke, and then I saw Woody Allen, and then I go to my dad, did you take this joke from Woody Allen? He's like, no, Woody Allen took this joke from old ass Russian jokes, right. where it's like, uh, you like this watch? It's a nice watch. On his deathbed, my father sold me this watch. <laughs> right. Yeah. That was like, I remember, I forget if it was in like, what was the one where he does like stand up bits in the beginning of it? I forget. But anyway, I think a bunch of his humor came from like Borscht Bell shit that they took from like old Russian. Yeah. I mean, does he have a Russian background, Woody Allen? Probably. Yeah. He was writing jokes. He seems like one of those Jews. (laughs) I mean, he was writing jokes as a like 12, 13 year old. Yeah. 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 So you're, you consider yourself more of a joke writer or performer? I think I'm, I'm a writer. But I've done it for many, many years to where I feel good as a performer. Mm-hmm. But I definitely started out stronger as a writer than mm-hmm. a performer. And I read on your bio you were doing warm-up for The Opposition on Comedy Central. I did warm-up for yeah. The Opposition. They were looking for someone new. I did it once. Mm-hmm. Enough to write it on my website. Don't you take that away from me, Gary. <laughs> nope. Uh, and then they got it's canceled. A credit. Uh, yeah, The Opposition got canceled. <laughs> yeah, before they found somebody new. They were still trying people out, so it's not like... I was going to get it if they didn't get canceled. Mm-hmm. But I did it once, and they were trying a couple more people out, and then it got canceled. Now, doing warm-up for a show, this is a common thing I mean, some people might not know about. It's oh, people, there's a whole circuit. There's yep, a whole, a whole agencies world. for it. it. It is a whole world. Now, how is it different doing warm-up comedy than doing like just a regular stand-up set? Well, I'll tell you this much. I can tell you how it's different, but that won't necessarily describe what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I kind of met somewhere in the middle a lot of, I mean, if, if people have gone, it's a lot of like canned jokes that are like, 
You know, if you hear something funny, make sure you laugh, applaud wildly. If you hear something that you don't like, laugh, applaud wildly, you know, that kind of shit. And sometimes some warm-ups will just play music and dance. It's just about getting everybody, like, excited, making sure they're paying attention. So you're you're a hype man, basically. Yeah, you're a hype man, basically, which is not really what I did. I did some of that. I did a little crowd work, and then I did material because I was like, fuck it. I'm going to be funny, and I'm going to make sure everybody's laughing and stuff. Which I don't know, maybe maybe I wouldn't have gotten it because of that. But mm. I I felt good about it. People enjoyed themselves. I had a buddy that worked there that got it for me. That was like, oh, that was much funnier than another guy that did it. Do you it. think maybe they don't want you to be that funny? Honestly, I I mean that's sounds very narcissistic to say it, but completely separated from whether I was funny or not. Mm-hmm. It's very possible that they don't want you doing a ton of set up punchline jokes because right. it sets up a particular rhythm and energy that might not match the rhythm and energy of the show. Right. So that, that could, that could be a thing where you don't want to do that too much. Yeah. I don't know necessarily that I did that too much, but yeah, I could see them not wanting somebody to just do a straight stand up set before. Yeah. I wonder, cause you could do a set that you've been writing for years and they got to do new stuff every night. Exactly. That's also true. And, and the inverse is true too. You know, I remember when I, this is a funny story. So really early in, in like a, a year and a half into doing stand up, I, got passed at comics mm-hmm. do you remember comics they yeah, were on 14th I wasn't here street then, but yeah oh they were on 14th street they were a huge beautiful club too nice clearly not sustainable yeah giant club really really nice the guys who owned it like co-owned a bunch of other businesses so they didn't particularly care like it wasn't like that they were that passionate about comedy but the way that that happened was i was also doing uh I played music all through high school and I was making beats when I first came. Mm-hmm. I still do music for fun, but like I was really like at the time like making beats and I was do I started doing guitar comedy, musical comedy. Uh-huh. And then maybe 8 9 years ago I I gave that up cuz I it felt corny and I just didn't like doing it, but I was still making beats and I was rapping and I was in a, a freestyle rapping improv group. Uh North Coast, they still perform, they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um and so I would be doing beats and I met Tom McCaffrey, who's mm-hmm. a great stand-up. I know Tom, yeah. So I met him, I think, at the Creek in the Cave. Him and Jason Sines were doing, uh, r- like, a free a rap, like, hip-hop act. And I was doing some stuff, and I probably hit him up, or we, we talked about it, doing a song together. I ended up doing a beat for something he was doing. We ended up doing a song together. Then he's like, I'm doing this song with um, Hannibal Burris. Um... Rob Cantrell, Ted Alexandro, um, Dan Burr, and fuck, I got almost everybody and I'm blanking. I know I'm missing one. Bunch of well-known comics. Bunch of very good, Mm well-known comics. Hannibal was like just blowing up at the time. Mm-hmm. He's like, "Can you do this beat for me? It's it's a song about called I'm a headliner, and it's like rapping about I'm a headliner." And so I do this beat, and then he's like, "Can you help me write a chorus?" So I write the chorus, and he's like, "Do you want to sing the chorus? You might as well just sing it. You wrote it." So then I sing the chorus, and then he's like, "Hey, we're shooting a video. You sang the chorus. You might as well do this video." Mm-hmm. So I'm in this video with these headliners. And I'm the one in the chorus singing, I'm a headliner, right. I got mad vagina from New York to China, ain't no one finer. <laughs> and so like auto, it was auto-tuned, I didn't sound that shitty. But, uh, oh, no, I'll auto-tune that. Well, and that was, oh, thank you, auto-tune it in post, please. Can you auto-tune this whole thing? This whole thing, yep. So, uh, so I, I do this song, they put out a video, and so thanks to that, I start doing shows with 
I've been friends with Rob ever since. We've mm-hmm. been on the road together. We've done tons of shows. Uh, but I'm doing shows at comics because they wanted us to do the songs. And then I'd start doing stand-up spots. And the, now I'm connecting this to what started this whole story mm-hmm. was that I would be a year and a half into comedy and like Todd Barry would come out and do his thing for 10 minutes and I'd have to follow him with my tight five like a year and a half into comedy. Impossible. And it was just like, yeah, I mean, it was okay. Sometimes it was not and sometimes mm-hmm. it was fine. Yeah. But it was that that energy difference where like a, a fucking master of his craft riffing for 10 minutes, you could have a really great five minutes even, but just energy wise, it's it's pretty difficult. It's different. You're yeah. really, you, people don't realize how much the energy of a room and how much a warm up or a host is responsible and really faci- a good one mm-hmm. in a great show. People don't realize how much that person facilitates that, that great Absolutely. show. And were you doing the musical comedy then? Um, at that time, uh, I, that was when I was, so I start. that was around when I just was starting stand up. So yeah. I was like, I, so the thing for me was I didn't, have such a cold plunge into the water with it. I was already on stage doing these like little funny songs and raps. But you didn't consider that stand up. No, but the way I started it was it was kind of two things that were responsible to this day. I don't talk to him as much anymore, but there's this comic in Jersey, Doug um damn it, I'm blanking on his name. He's uh got, he's like a cop during the day and I still see his like right wing cop memes on Facebook sometimes. But he's like <laughs> in Jersey and he would host this show and I would do these songs and I would do I would start to write jokes and I would do like a couple minutes in between or something. Right. And he was like, you should think about just leaving the guitar at home. Like the try the jokes. He was mm-hmm. one of the people that told me to do that. And then why? Because he thought you were a crappy guitar player, or I don't know. I, I'd like to think he, he was doing it as a positive. No, I'm still right. I'm a I'm a pretty good guitar player, um, but uh, I'm not a great singer, uh-huh. and that's what ultimately was part of the decision. You know, I watch guys like Stephen Lynch and like mm-hmm. um, Tim Minchin, and Les Minchin's a great great musician, but Stephen Lynch really like has a beautiful voice, mm, yeah. and I'm not as much probably if I listen to his songs now, I probably wouldn't be as much in them anymore either. But as a 19 year old when I was like doing this stuff. Uh, Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham didn't exist yet, I don't think. No, not yet. Um, but probably wasn't even born. Probably wasn't <laughs> even born. That piece of shit. Uh, he'll do better than us all, uh, or he is doing. What am I talking about? He is doing better than us all. Um, but and, and probably will. <laughs> yeah, and we'll continue to. But um, you, you know, when you have a great voice, it's also a lot funnier. Right. You know, like any really good musical comedian, it's like much better when they're good at music because it's just plausible it's it's like it's believable you know so it's the same way as delivering a joke well to deliver a a, a comedy song well part of what makes it good is the fact that people see you as a serious musician and then it's a serious you know somebody who's really a great musician can sing something that's bare there's there's bands i'm trying to think like um like reggie watts has a great voice yeah you know yeah and well he's just a whole whole unique thing in general but like like bloodhound gang i think of where Mm. they're like sort of kind of funny Uh but but they're fun and, and they don't have to be that funny because they they were musicians first yeah. or a band first or whatever they are but like it it makes it funnier when someone when you take them seriously as a musician when yeah. they do this thing and so i was never a great singer i can kind of pull off some things and like uh, i've i got better i still got better and where like i would enjoy i was in bands and i would sometimes sing and things like that mm-hmm. but it was never that good where i could it was just sell a comedy song properly. So how long do you consider yourself have been doing stand-up comedy? Probably like 
close to nine years now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and but let me tell you exactly. So 2007, I moved here. 2008. You know, it might be 10 years, actually. It might be 10 years. Mm-hmm. So because so the first... You, this, because it's kind of blurry, like you kind of slowly more. It's a little blurry, it. but it did, but I know when it when that transformation really happened was first year I moved here, I lived in Park Slope. And the second year I moved here, I lived in Hell's Kitchen. And during that time that I lived in Hell's Kitchen, there was this show at Stand Up New York called Music is a Joke. Mm-hmm. And they would do a season of it. And they had judges. And it was every Monday night they you submitted and they picked like eight or ten musical comedians it was eight actually i believe because it was eight musical comedians that they picked and every week you had to do 10 minutes of new material based on a good, subject they give good you. challenge great challenge and when i say that it's also a combination of like if you happen to have a song that kind of fits this challenge right, yeah. you can do it yeah. but it's still 10 new minutes for eight weeks so that's 80 minutes of different material you have to do for those eight weeks and A, that's a lot to write music-wise. Yep. And it's nice to get a little break and throw some jokes in there. Mm-hmm. So I would start throwing more and more jokes in there. I did a lot of music writing during that point too, but I would start throwing more and more jokes in there. And that was where I also met Sabrina Jalise, who was a judge at the show. Mm-hmm. And I lived nearby and we would, uh, her and like a bunch of other people, we would all hang out and go back to my place and like smoke weed and hang out. And she's a fantastic comic, and she already was back then. She was like a superstar in Canada that just moved here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she was an influence on me because I'd, I'd watch her, and she was so good. And I started doing more jokes. And, and specifically during that time at Stand Up New York was when I was like sort of got sick of musical comedy from being so immersed in it yep. and started writing more jokes and mm-hmm. doing more of that. Which uh, I'm asking this for personal reasons because I'm also a musician. Which gives you gets your yayas out more writing music or writing comedy or performing stand-up i think performing stand-up in the end i I love writing and again i'm i feel like that's sort of where i began with my strengths but now uh, i i love having that you know skeleton of punchlines, but then writing the energy of it Mm -hmm. i mean you know because i find a lot of creative people and i find this because I'm a creative person. But yeah. like I find this if I don't do something creative for a while, I start to get very angsty and unhappy. Yeah. So whether I pick up a guitar and start playing or I start writing jokes or go out and do an even an open mic, you know, yeah. anything to just like get the creative juices flowing. But I've been finding that music is almost like a different part of my brain. Totally. Yeah. I've gotten more into What's funny is I randomly, I, I like can play the bass a little bit because I play guitar mm. um but i've had a bass for a while um because i've used it to like record stuff record bass lines and then all of a sudden recently i just started jamming out on bass more part of it was because i was jamming with my buddy johnny conroy who co-hosts my show and he's a phenomenal guitarist i consider myself like a pretty good guitarist he's like really really good so for jamming i'm either doing rhythm or bass sometimes he'll do rhythm and i'll lead and it's not that he he'll like prefers it or whatever but, but it's like, almost so different than comedy because comedy is very heady you know, it takes place like very intellectualized where music, you just, you're not in your head at all. You're just like in your body and you kind of disappear. I'd like to say that the performing isn't as, as heady for me. At least I tried stand, not to make it. Up. Yeah. Well, at mm. its best, I, I definitely is when I'm not in my head. Right. Of course. But yeah, music's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, 
uh, I guess it's just more naturally like less antagonistic. Even when it's great, comedy <laughs> yeah. still has a little bit of like tension and release. Yeah. But music is is there is technically a tension and release with music. You want there to be a buildup. You've got yeah. that like seventh chord that you hit yeah. before you release it. That's what the blues is. Yeah. But and that's you know my favorite thing to jam on too is just just little twelve bar blues. Uh huh. Um, but but now when I got a free hour at home and when especially when I was smoking weed before this month but like i'll just put on like a drum track mm -hmm. in logic and i'll just jam out on a bass line to it or just like look up like jackson five bass lines and uh, like stuff just does really like fun like nice bass lines yeah and, and, just, bass line. and i could just jam out with the bass line like <laughs> for like an hour or something you know mm -hmm. and an hour disappears like that easily yeah. easily so uh what's what's next for you what are you what are you working on uh a lot of stuff i don't want to say most of it too preemptively but the main thing i've got my show the breakdown mm -hmm. uh, i've been doing it every month and it's been getting better and better we're we're slowly building a following and we'll be getting great guests this last one was the biggest one so far um was that at ucb no that's at um so we started at the slipper room and then at the um at the red room upstairs at kgb bar is where it is now oh cool and um yeah, Lower East Side, still in the Lower East Side. I like doing it in the Lower East Side. And the last one we had, like I said, R.L. Stein, who was like a childhood. Like I read his books growing up, and mm -hmm. he was such a gem doing the show too. He had, he like wrote comedy bits and stuff. Like he nice. I th like most of it is usually just like an interview, and I think of interview questions, and it, it's fun because I do an interview, and then I have um, three improvisers. Uh, it's been different, but now we've got a set three that are all really fantastic and they do a quick improv set based on the interview. Cool. And so I had him and I had Andrea Belke from Survivor. She was on three series of Survivor. So I have a producer that's super helpful in it and like we're really like starting to build a thing. So I'm cool. pretty stoked about that. Um, aside from that, um, I'm working on just same thing every stand-up's working on, mm -hmm. you know, submitting for late night and things like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as far as what's next for anybody listening, hopefully I'll be in wherever they're listening from and they should check me out live. Nice. Um, we'll put the your link in the show notes. Yeah. And then I'm doing a lot of writing. Uh, actually, no, this is this is one that is close enough to completion where I'm we're almost done with the music too. Me and my buddy wrote a musical uh, about the guy who invented vaping. <laughs> there is one guy that invented vaping yeah herbert gilbert is he st he's still alive i i think but basically we based it so loosely we we like shit on him the whole musical just because uh -huh. it's funny uh our our tagline is to do for him the opposite of what hamilton did for alexander hamilton <laughs> nice. so we just have him involved with like a lot of crazy stuff that's not even remotely historically accurate right, right uh but we got jody shelton doing music for it who's like he did the music for the president show and they did a musical special oh, cool he's done a bunch of like comedy central stuff he the um the uh the music lead for baby wants candy so you wrote the script not the music. we wrote the script mm -hmm. and the lyrics and jody's working with us writing the music cool. putting your lyrics to the music yeah exactly nice. and so once that's done uh We'll probably start like you know doing a read through and staging it and seeing how we're gonna produce it. So there'll mm -hmm. be that, um, and then I'm working on writing like a bunch of shit. That's all in the works. We'll we'll see what what happens yeah. to it if anything. You know, in the those. entertainment world, it didn't happen until it already happened. Exactly. So hard to speak too early on stuff and then feel like an asshole. Later. Yes. Well, uh, thanks so much for your time. This is great. Thank you. Hey.